Hi, and welcome to another episode in Conversations with Des. I'm your host, Des Blanchfield, and today I have the privilege of having Pravin Bola from Tech Mahindra with me in the studio. Pravin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Des. Uh, looking forward to our discussion. Thanks so much for making time. It's um, uh, I'm here in Sydney, but you're in, in Bangalore, and, and today is actually a special day from what I understand, uh, just talking to you earlier. It's August the 15th, which is Independence Day, I believe. That's correct. Yes, it is on Independence Day today. Well, look, thanks so much for making time today on your day off. I, I apologize for disturbing you, but uh, probably a great opportunity to get you when you're uh, not disrupted. Now, just a quick intro to yourself, and then I might get you to, to give a bit more of a detailed introduction to yourself and your background. You've, you've got quite a deep pedigree in business and technology, and I was looking at your background. You've come from experience in companies like Infosys and uh, Honeywell and DHL. And uh, just more recently, in the last sort of seven and a half to eight years, you've been inside Tech Mahindra. Is that correct? That, that is correct, Des. And uh, my 25 years of uh, career has largely been uh, on the client side or the customer side of the uh, house, uh, working with companies like DHL for about 10 years and Honeywell. Uh, and, and coming from that side of the fence, in the last uh, nine to 10 years, it's been more around uh, the service provider side. So kind of have the... Uh, perspectives from both sides of the fence, uh, understanding what customers want um, and, and, and uh, the challenges they face uh, and trying to address that from a service provider side. And being on the other side of the fence, I work with service providers in uh, pro uh, delivering services to us. So I know how customers go about uh, choosing their preferences, choosing their vendors, um, what and why relationships matter and why uh, uh, saying what you say matters for them. And, and you know, trying to be upfront and honest about things. Right. Uh, some of these softer aspects go um, uh, uh, go well in these relationships, and I'm able to uh, manage that quite well because I've, come, uh, I've had the experience of being on both sides of the fence. It is a unique perspective, and I think it's an important one because uh, you know, I have a number of colleagues over the last two or three decades myself where they've either been in the provider space exclusively or they've been in, in, in businesses where they're always the client. And often they don't have that benefit that you clearly have of having the ability to see the insight from both sides. And I looked at your, your various roles inside Tech Mahindra, and you've come from infrastructure. You've been in, uh, a global head of cloud services sometime and infrastructure services. So, so your current role is you're a senior vice president and global head of cloud services. Is that correct? That that is correct, uh, Des. And uh, in this, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, just give us a little bit of insight into like, what that role entails and 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 kind of you know what that what that actually means on a day to day basis as far as what you do. Sure. So I took on this role uh, a little less than a year back, uh, and uh, this role existed was in in our organization for the last uh, four uh, close to four years. Uh, prior to which we were doing cloud, but not necessarily in a very focused, uh, in a focused way. Um, it was created about four years back. A lot of the work um, that my predecessors had done wasn't wasn't building up this capability around cloud um, uh, within the organization by. Uh, building practices around AWS and other cloud technologies and Azure and Google, working through those and building those up. Um, I, having come from the infrastructure services background, um, having managed uh, 
multiple roles, played multiple roles within Tech Mahindra as an organization uh, in the infrastructure services business. Um, I actually uh, started looking at cloud almost five, six years back because it's a close interplay between infrastructure services and the transformations that the infrastructure of an organization go is going through today and, um, uh, and into cloud. So um, for me, uh, it, it was an easy transition into this role and my CEO of the organization asked me to take that up um, because even from his perspective, he felt uh, someone with an infrastructure background would be able to articulate the value and benefits uh, to a customer better than anybody else um, in, in, in convincing customers on taking that migration uh, path towards cloud. Uh, so for me, it's been an interesting journey, uh, interesting learning um, in, in taking up this role as well. Um, but more importantly, uh, for me, it's about uh, it's about uh, being in the middle of this whole journey that's started off um, in the in the recent years, um, where customers are looking at a major transformation. Uh, I, I sometimes tell people it's it's a, uh, it's another Y2K moment. Right. Uh, during the Y2K era, uh, every CIO had a need to do Y2K and fix their applications. Uh, this is another one of those moments where every CIO has to get on the table and figure out what is he going to do, he or she is going to do on the cloud. Um, so you don't get too, too many such moments uh, in your career. I'm, I'm glad to be um, uh, you know, in the center of it for my organization and helping customers, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, understand the value and benefits of moving to cloud and adopting it and, you know, um, giving them a helping hand. It's, it's, so it's an interesting role. I can only imagine. Uh, and I, 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 um, I envy you in that uh, I think, you know, as we get to a certain point in life in our professional careers, one of the most important things is the, the desire to jump out of bed and actually do the job. Um, and it's also interesting that you, you talked about some of the things that um, – that uh, I'd, I'd been thinking about asking you about, in fact, which is uh, some of the key challenges around the space that you're in. It, it is, in my mind, you almost need to have a pedigree in, in physical and, and, and virtual and logical infrastructure to really fully grasp the benefit of cloud because there are a lot of what I call cloud natives now, folk who've really only uh, known technology in the cloud space, so they've never really got their hands on a server or a router or a switch or a firewall or, or storage arrays and, and racks and so forth. They've never been in a data center. So often when they think about when they develop things and they come from a pure DevOps background, they don't always have the depth of the infrastructure skills to understand what's inside either legacy environments or large enterprise and government spaces and see where they can really add value. And I think that's one of the key differentiators I, I saw when, when I looked into sort of the kind of pedigree you came from. Because it's to me, it's really important to be able to understand where we've come from and the, the technology stacks that are people are already running from a legacy environment to then be able to see what the transition to cloud looks like. Is that the kind of journey you see quite regularly? Do you, do you have customers who come to you in, 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 in I guess, in two states? One, uh, a clean sheet that they just want to put a new service into the cloud, which is probably the, the, the lesser, but more so is it the case that um, it, they've got current infrastructure and they want to uh, I guess, scale down the, the number of physical boxes and they want to leverage the cloud for, for a whole range of reasons. What are you seeing in that space between the split between legacy infrastructure and, and, and transition to cloud versus uh, all new clean uh, projects that just go purely to the cloud first? 
So, so good, good question, Des, and I, I kind of put, put, it, put this in uh, the greenfield, brownfield model, right? So yeah. brownfield is more about moving legacy into cloud and greenfield is looking at new. So we're getting requirements from uh, on both sides. Now, obviously, the volume of business um, that uh, our, our requirements coming in to transition brownfield environments into or legacy environments into cloud is more. Um, uh, however, having said that, the importance of the greenfield um, uh, is very much there as well because the opportunities in the greenfield, which is building new solutions on cloud, is largely coming in this new transformation, the digital transformation world, right? So mobility, IoT, analytics, right. um, AI, machine learning, customers wanting to leverage the uh, native capabilities of a cloud, uh, whether it be uh, Google, uh, uh, IBM, so the Bluemix, uh, Azure, AWS, all of the, the, them have varying levels of uh, capability around all of these native uh, technology platforms. And customers wanting to build these new digital transformations um, and digital solutions on cloud is where we're seeing a lot of the requirements coming in from the green field perspective. Um, and, and that's an interesting yeah. journey. Uh, it is it is driven by business requirement, a business need and solution. And uh, if you were to ask me, uh, what am I learning in this whole process of being uh, of running this uh, organization, this team for, for, for cloud, uh, is actually learning the digital aspects of the various business verticals, right? And and how those digital transformations are impacting those businesses. This has been a big learning for me in the last seven, eight months that I've been running this role and how cloud is playing a very important uh, uh, foundational role uh, in that journey. Um, and uh, so so that's, that's the uh, greenfield side of the house. On the brownfield, um, where customers are looking at moving legacy environments onto cloud, th this is a big... Uh, uh, this is a big wave that's starting off, and it started, uh, I would say, about 18 to 24 months back. Um, until about 18 months back, it was largely test development workloads that were being leveraged by large enterprises. I'm, I'm focusing primarily on the Fortune 2000 type large enterprise organizations, and they've been, till about 18 months back, primarily focused on uh, uh, test and dev environments. Right. And, Using um, uh, uh, using cloud for some of these digital solutions, the legacy modernization, legacy movement of workloads onto cloud has just started in the last year and a half, and has got a long way to go because there is a significant. We've just barely scratched the surface in that area, uh, so there's a huge opportunity space there, and that's a space where we um, uh, in Tech Mahindra are looking at servicing our customers um, in the next two to three years, because that's the time frame that uh, pretty much this industry will need to move at least 50% of the workloads across over uh, in this Fortune 2000 uh, uh, customer base. Um, and and, and uh, uh, this is where uh, individuals who have uh, a fairly good understanding of legacy environments, whether it be the legacy applications or the legacy infrastructure, uh, will be able to better appreciate what is needed to migrate and when you move to cloud. Yeah. And, and uh, that's an important aspect uh, for us. And we're seeing a, a big, huge amount of traction building up in this space of legacy uh, modernization onto cloud. 
Um, and and uh, that's uh, one of the key drivers for growth. If you ask me, if, my, if you uh, for, from a business growth perspective, that that's the, uh, the the biggest needle mover for us. I'm going to lead into a couple of quick questions just around that, and then then I'd like to to actually take the natural transition to where those big workloads are, because you've mentioned a couple of very interesting things there. If I can. Um, what what are your general um, what are you seeing from a from Tech Mahindra's point of view with your clients? What are you seeing around the adoption between the the, the mix of public, private, and hybrid? Where, how does that break up? If if you're going to summarise in that in a couple of minutes, is it the case that we're still looking at a lot of public cloud adoption early on? Uh, are people thinking about private cloud in any form, or are they still using dedicated hardware or hypervisors? And and are we leading to a, a true hybrid model, or where do we sit at the moment, and particularly in the market you're seeing in Australia? Sure. So I think let me give you a bit of a global picture first, and then we'll narrow down onto Australia. Um, and let's pick one at, at a time. So the public cloud adoption clearly has started, and that momentum is picking up. And that as a standalone. More, uh, momentum and a strategy by organizations have picked up. Right. Private cloud, uh, where customers are going um, through the motions of wanting to adopt cloud, uh, possibly wanting to do private cloud. The challenge there has been uh, the the products in the marketplace for private clouds have been maturing over the last three four years. This they're still changing a lot. There's, um, you know, whether it be VMware with its private cloud, it, they've renamed their product at least uh, three or four times. Microsoft has had different strategies towards private cloud, and they have changed their names of their products over a period of time. And so has HP and others uh, in the space who try to address the private cloud space because of the a rate of change in features and capabilities and the products and through acquisitions, uh, enterprises have struggled to uh, put a finger on the uh, on their strategy and say, hey, this is what I will do with my private cloud. So unfortunately, while public clouds adoption has been um, increasing at a very good pace over the last three to four years, the private cloud adoption hasn't really kicked off um, uh, very well. It's It's been in pockets is what we are seeing. And um, the, the, the two key players who are now catching on into the space and, and coming out as leaders uh, in comparison with the traditional tooling vendors who also came up uh, with private cloud solutions. Uh, the, the leaders coming out are really VMware and uh, Microsoft uh, um, today is, that what, is what we're seeing in the public cloud space. So, uh, um, and the adoption of private cloud uh, um, uh, will start taking place from this year onwards. We've seen some amount of traction last year in 2016 uh, customers specifically calling out RF, in RFPs that they want a private cloud. We saw that we started seeing that for the first time early 2016. Okay. That's interesting. Um, and yeah, and, and uh, it, it was kind of um, interesting for us to also see observe and see that. You know, they are, these are customers who are heavily virtualized. So when they said private cloud, they didn't really mean that they wanted to become more virtualized. They were mature virtualized customers with almost 70, 80 percent of their workloads being virtualized already, but wanting to go on a private cloud. So that was uh, that showed us that uh, there were customers who are trying to uh, who have understood the value of a private cloud and wanting to adopt. Um, interestingly, in, in, in uh, most of those opportunities that we saw last year, no one 
provided a prescription as to what they wanted. They allowed us to come, kind of come to them and recommend what was the best private cloud solution, that what was the best CMP or cloud management platform for them. Right. Um, and obviously, based on the workloads they had, based on the investments they had, you know, the, uh, the propositions we gave to them varied, and it varied from uh, uh, from VMware, VRA to a Microsoft uh, solution to to Cisco as well. Uh, in one case. Uh, that we proposed last year. So last year we saw attraction uh, 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 pick up finally um, on the private cloud space. Now, what's interesting though is now when you talk to customers um, who have adopted private cloud in some shape or form, and some some customers also say that hey, I, I already have a private cloud, and what they really mean is they have a virtualized DC, and they have done certain amount of standardization, and they have some amount of automation, and they tend to call it private cloud. And they use public cloud as well. And in conversations, and this is more terminologies uh, that are being missed, uh, uh, that are kind of creating some of this confusion in the marketplaces, customers have started saying, I'm, I am using hybrid cloud. And what they really mean by that is, I have a virtual, virtualized DC or I have a private cloud, uh, and I'm also using public cloud. Um, and right. they say, you know, I'm on a hybrid path now. And, but that truly is not where uh, what hybrid cloud is meant to be. So hybrid cloud, uh, unfortunately, hasn't become a reality yet for uh, organizations. Um, when the concept of hybrid cloud came out, it, it was to promote the fact that you should be able to leverage, deploy uh, workloads on private, leverage the public when you had additional capacity requirements or move workloads seamlessly between private and public, uh, have a single governance model and a platform to govern and manage both the private and public. Uh, those are the aspects um, that makes a true hybrid cloud deployment uh, effective for an organization. And moving forward, customers have to start thinking about that because that's going to become a reality. And it is uh, 2017 is going to uh, help kickstart that journey. And primarily because of two reasons. Um, one is Microsoft and uh, its uh, release of uh, Azure Stack, which is bringing the uh, Azure cloud capability into the data center of the customer. And on the other hand, VMware with its partnership with AWS uh, will be launching soon their solution where uh, their private cloud uh, uh, will be available, uh, so or VMware cloud would be available on AWS, and uh, their virtualization platform right. will be available on AWS. When these two products um, uh, come out um, into the marketplace, customers will see a, see the ability to you know seamlessly move workloads between private and and public, and that's where the value. Uh, uh, the, these are the values that the customers were looking for, and. Uh, it is around the corner. Uh, these are products that are just coming out in the second half of this year. Um, so this year, I'm I'm expecting to see a whole lot of POCs and pilots from customers wanting to adopt these. Um, but but the uh, the hybrid cloud is going to take off moving forward uh, from now on. So that's where I would yeah. say where private, public, and hybrid is today. 
And I think what we've seen with, um, you know, for about five or six years, I remember standing on a soapbox screaming to the public that uh, Microsoft was becoming a cloud company, get ready for it. And, and few people really bought into it. And then eventually the Office 365 transition happened and people sat up and paid attention and thought, wow, what just happened? And, and something that a number of us, and I'm sure yourselves have been saying as well, is that just get ready for the cloud that's coming. It's almost going to be the only option, and, and nowadays, you know, you, you can't buy the the Office Suite from Microsoft unless it's a cloud package platform. Yes, you can download Correct. the GUI apps, but it's still a subscription model, and and you know whether it's a, a home edition, personal, professional edition, or an enterprise edition, it's effectively a cloud service. And I I think now we're going to see, as you just outlined, this whole public private hybrid thing. In my mind, it's actually going to be built into the DNA of the platform, so you are not going to get a choice. And if we look at the trend in some of the very fast-moving tools around analytics and dashboarding tools, uh, the transition from spreadsheeting to, to analytics uh, tools that people are carrying on their tablets for, for BI and CRM type interfaces, where we're seeing now that these tools are actually having, uh, I guess, the, the DNA changed where people are now expecting you to have the ability to cloud burst. They expect you to have some capability with, with big data and analytics in the background and and if you don't, they expect you to be able to have an account somewhere like a, a public cloud to do that. So I, I agree with you. And I think the other thing that I want to call out is that um, you mentioned uh, that you know there's a challenge around the software stacks. And people have played with the likes of open source with OpenStack and CloudStack. They've struggled with the Hyper-V and VMware space. Azure, obviously, is looking at an on-premise thing. And I, I noted that recently, I think it was HP. I could be wrong, but don't quote me. But I think it was HP did a thing with Azure where now you can get the Azure stack on their hardware on-premise. But it's, it's, it's a very gray, messy area in my mind. But I think, um, you, hopefully you'll agree, but I think everyone's moving toward this idea that, that we're sort of an API-driven world now and that the idea of a manually deployed thing is almost... Um, uh, an evil thing because it's got finger trouble human error whereas if we move towards yeah you know, and it's not even a case of entirely devops in my mind because not everyone's developing but it's that automation and orchestration isn't it where once you build it once and you document it and you script it you want it to be able to happen time and time again and scale up and down on demand and you know azure and, and, and vmware do that and certainly the public cloud does uh, and i imagine that's something you're seeing come through now where people are saying look we want to we want orchestration um, we may want to burst dev and test and, and UAT and, and systems integration up into the cloud and only pay for it when we need because there's a big difference to having a tens of thousands of dollars of the development infrastructure sitting there 24-7 where the bulk is unused on the weekends versus pushing out the cloud, which is going to cost them a fraction. Um, and, and they can also burst on demand. You know, If you've got a, a, a large workforce, if they're walking around with tablets and tools and laptops and want to do some analytics, I know Excel, for example, in Office is, is getting close to this where you can burst into the Azure cloud for, for big workloads. Um, it leads me, I had another question around what you, I mean, you mentioned a couple of interesting things that you were saying that you're seeing like nearly a 50% uh, adoption of workloads in the cloud. Are there, are there particular areas where you're seeing industry groups uh, is it logistics or transport or aviation or health or education? Are there particular industry segments or industry groups that you think are ahead of the curve? Who are the who are the more rapid and, and I guess, advanced players in this space? Or, or is there a natural fit that you've found in your customer base within Tech Mahindra uh, and, and your space around the, the, the you know, your role as the global head of cloud services? Who's been an early adopter and, and who's a natural fit in that space that you've seen that just fits nicely with the, the cloud capabilities that we've got today versus who might be finding it more difficult to get to the cloud for various reasons? 
All right. So um, when I took on this role, uh, like I said, about seven, eight months back, um, I was asking the same question to my team and, and, and uh, trying to understand where, what's happening. And, and interestingly, in my mind, uh, when I took on this role, I felt the, some of the highly regulated industries like aerospace, which has got a lot of, uh, um, uh, a lot of regulations um, and, and uh, um, as a, for, for a large U.S. aircraft manufacturer, I don't want to take the name, but it's quite obvious. Um, you know, I, I thought organizations like them would be uh, uh, would be the last ones to get on the bandwagon, um, and even state governments um, uh, because of uh, regulatory requirements right. and stuff. Right. But what was interesting for me was, you know, there was a in our pipeline. I found opportunities where uh, we were pursuing uh, opportunities in these highly regulated um, verticals as well. So the, the the myth that I had was, you know, this is cloud is only for uh, not so regulated uh, industries, uh, and for the regulated regulated industries, or highly regulated industries, may take some time before they adopt. Was actually wrong. So so pretty much the adoption uh, when I look at my pipeline of opportunities that we're working on across the various verticals for a mature market like North America. Um, I, I, I'm seeing it across whether it's healthcare, whether it's retail, manufacturing, BFSI, banking, financial services, um, uh, aerospace, uh, auto, uh, transportation sector. So I think uh, it is all the verticals are firing now. Okay. Maybe two years back it was different, but uh, I see all the verticals firing up. The ones that are uh, trying to take advantage of it um, uh, uh, to help get a lead in their market from a competition perspective and have, has direct value for business. Um, there's obviously the the, 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 uh, the media industry, which is a heavy adopter of cloud uh, for obvious reasons because of the digital content that's being uh, consumed across yeah. the globe with the advent of mobility and stuff. Um, so, so the media media industry is uh, heavily consuming cloud, and they've been early adopters um, uh, and a lot of expertise there. Um, the the telcos uh, have started to uh, um, uh, use it more in the digital solution space as so the telecom vertical. So, a lot uh, they are now dependent on a lot of analytics that's going on in the background to look at uh, the, uh, the behaviors and patterns of purchases and usage of uh, uh, da- uh, usage of data to provide value added services. So big uses of uh, solutions around big data analytics, uh, uh, the, the, the telecom vertical, um, and uh, uh, the retail industry as well, uh, with wanting uh, you know the traditional retailers wanting to go online, and, and uh, wanting those uh, online capabilities built on the cloud. So they have been early adopters, and these are these are people who have adopted cloud because it gave them an uh, immediate distinct advantage from a business standpoint to compete in the marketplace. But um, you know, when I look at others like manufacturing and um, and banking and financial services, again, there also there is a lot of uh, online retail banking going on. Uh, they have also caught on, irrespective of the regulatory uh, uh, aspects of their respective industries. Um, now, the, the adoption is not so much getting skewed moving forward because of verticals, but the adoption is more skewed or based on geographies. And that's where I have disparity in my, um, when I look at my demand uh, pipeline, um, the, the disparity is uh, in geographies. So North America clearly 
leader in that space. Uh, Australia is another uh, leader in the cloud adoption um, space. And when I look at uh, some of these markets like North America and Australia, what clearly stands out are these are cloud-native countries. And right. what I mean by cloud-native countries is that the top three, four, five cloud providers have their data centers in these countries. So immediately the concerns around uh, data uh, hosting or data residency uh, to fulfill some of the data regulatory requirements, uh, they go out of the door because uh, these providers now give you uh, in their contract a commitment to in, uh, commitment ensuring the data will reside in that country. Uh, India uh, has just uh, got the AWS and Azure data centers just last year, and the traction is just picking up big time now in India. Uh, because of that, so 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 cloud native countries where um, uh, where, where where these popular cloud providers um, uh, have their data centers in, they're the ones where the traction is taking place. But the countries where they're not there, uh, um, the traction is lesser because there, uh, it uh, the uh, verticals which are not heavily regulated are the ones adopting it because they don't mind if they're. Um, uh, if their uh, data is in, uh, sitting in Singapore or in, or in Europe. So we, we can't be doing, um, uh, helping a customer, a re retail customer in uh, Middle East and Dubai um, move on to uh, uh, Azure. And uh, they're okay with it because they're not bound by a whole lot of regulatory requirements. There are some uh, aspects which they want uh, uh, to be local and hosted locally in their data center, but a big chunk of their uh, workloads is now we're moving them to uh, to Azure. Right. Um, so, so, so I'm seeing in non-native countries the uh, regulatory, regulated and the non-regulated or less regulated in the, uh, verticals um, have got a bigger traction, uh, but these tractions will improve as and when. Um, uh, data centers pop up there providing cloud services. And, and I think it's going to be a, a really big challenge for us in the next three to five years in my mind, and that is that, uh, I mean, Australia and, and, and Germany in particular, and certainly India, have had very strong privacy uh, regulatory controls and laws. I mean, Australia's uh, laws go back to, to uh, something like, I think it's like 1815 or something crazy. It's like a long time ago we created this concept of the, of the Privacy Act, and then right. as late as uh, last year, we came up with a, an addendment to it that uh, introduced something called the Notifiable Breaches Act. And that is that if you had a large enough breach of any form that ha included uh, a PII, a pri um, personally identifiable information, you were legally bound to, to, to publicly announce it and, and declare it and, and deal with it in, in appropriate fashion. The EU, with their, their new GDPR, the General Data uh, Protection Regulation, have taken things to another level. They've almost gone what uh, spinal tap and turned it up to eleven. In that, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about the challenges that Europe's going to face with the GDPR, and, and certainly uh, it, it's it's um, surrounding community with with uh, India and 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 um, parts of Africa and, and and the UK. But you know, the more I look at the GDPR, the more I realise that Australian countries, uh, sorry, Australian companies and and suppliers and vendors or service providers are actually going to have to sit up and pay attention because the GDPR affects any part of a, of a global distribution network. So if you're part of a supply chain and, and right. you know, let's say I'm a customer for, for somebody in Europe or let's say I buy something online in Europe, uh, you know, if my data is moving backwards and forwards between the Europe and the Australian region, 
uh, I'm crossing boundaries, and all of a sudden the GDPR becomes a fairly blurry line, and, and in some cases the very solid line. And so I can imagine that cloud uh, blurs that even more, and that is if, if, if the Tech Mahindra team are being asked by a multinational to build a cloud solution, uh, whether it's all in or part thereof, one of the big challenges is going to be, as you just said, that whole compliance and regulatory governance control around data and, and where workloads are run and what data is moving in and out of those workloads. Um, where do you think Australia sits in that space? I mean, you know, obviously there's a, there's a global challenge on whole, but from, from the listeners' point of view where they're interested in Australia, uh, what, what are your general thoughts around where Australia sits in that challenge? I mean, we, we do have most of the big providers. We've got the likes of uh, Amazon's Web Services from Amazon. We've got Microsoft's Azure. We have... Um, Rackspace, although they've probably migrated more to a service provider and a support uh, capability rather than a platform provider now. We've had IBM acquire SoftLayer and rebranded as the Bluemix offering. And there's a whole range of local providers. I think the last time I did a survey, there was over 112 companies in Australia that called themselves uh, cloud companies, but really probably about 30 or 40 that had real infrastructure. You know, do you have a sense? Uh, it might be a tough question, and I apologize it is, but do you have a sense, a sense of where Australia... Um, sits in that space around the challenge that you're going to face. You know, in other words, from a Tech Mahindra point of view, how difficult is it to deal with Australia um, domestically and globally with the level of privacy control with data, with the, the regulatory controls globally? Uh, are we a nightmare to deal with or are we just another challenge that you've already faced? Where do you think we sit and what's the general sense on that? So uh, let me, um, before I saw these challenges in Australia, uh, we were already, while we have the EU and Europe, um, it's interesting to note that um, Sweden, as an example, or Norway, they have uh, policies um, uh, over and above EU. Um, and uh, in order to comply with them, you cannot host it in any other country other than their own country. They have those a set of challenges as well. So, so some of the uh, Nordics countries have this challenge. Um, we, we were trying to host one of their, uh, uh, one of the customers uh, in Sweden, in, uh, out of Germany. And uh, they uh, uh, they came back, their security folks came back and said, <clears throat> not possible. Right. Uh, Sweden has got a certain set of rules and uh, policies that it requires everything to be hosted uh, in Sweden. Now, um, so so uh, from one perspective, what Australia's uh, 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 Australia's privacy challenges that are there um, in terms of data residency will get resolved because of the public pro providers being there. It's more around data movement across if the business process demands it, right? Now, th that's a global challenge. Uh, every global organization where uh, making, making sure that the data is residing in their home country is easy now because you know as long as the cloud provider is in that country right. it's a native uh, cloud hosting but if a business process demands that the data flows between suppliers um, uh, across country borders and if those data um, are related to uh, personally undefined information as an example um, there are. Uh, it's, it's not a challenge for. It's not a problem statement for Australia alone. It's a problem statement that the, uh, you know, the global organization. I mean, someone like the UN, a body like the UN, has to resolve and help in resolving it because uh, it is. Um, uh, uh, it, it's going to be very difficult to track and, and see how these because cloud is not the cause of it. It is more these regulatory demands 
that uh, um, or what I call as the uh, iron curtains that are coming up across, across uh, uh, which the, which every country is putting up to protect their citizens uh, from uh, possible cyber threats, right? Yeah. And and and, and you know it, it's not cloud is not the cause of it. It is more the cyber. Uh, cyber attacks are the cause of it, um, but uh, the solution to these problems where um, the business process demands data to flow from one country to another um, yeah, will not be uh, will not be a unique situation for Australia. I don't have an answer as to how these can be solved. Um, there has to be some regulation around how this is dealt with. Um, I think globally, every country is struggling to come up with. Um, data and personal identity um, uh, regulations and uh, and tweaking the existing ones to make it more uh, uh, more safer for the citizens of the country. Um, but these are some business challenges that are yet to be addressed in a in a holistic manner. Uh, well, they're they're really big problems, aren't they? And and as you mentioned correct. before, they they get blurred very quickly. I mean, I. I used to do a lot of consulting work and advisory work around the EU-US data shield and particularly how it applied to Australia. And 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 more recently, we've seen uh, Switzerland stand up and say that they um, they like the privacy shield framework that the EU-US um, privacy shield offered, but they want their own Swiss version. So, uh, you know, when when people focus on things like the the, the EU GDPR, um, they can often get distracted by the fact that you know May twenty fifth two thousand eighteen is coming like a freight train, and there is no get out of jail card. Um, although, you know, some time ago, over a decade and a half ago, Australia introduced the global, uh, the um, goods and sales tax, GST, and it was like a 10% tax on everything sold. And there was a similar experience in that, you know, they said it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, here it is, bang, it's on. The fact is no one's gone to jail yet for not complying with GST and, and, and selling products and services and, and maybe having some errors in GST uh, application mm-hmm. of sales tax. I don't see anyone going to jail on day one for not being GDPR compliant, but I do see people being penalised if they aren't at least doing something about it. But it does get very quickly blurred, as you said, because it isn't. It's not like there's um you know these these um, uh, walls are not very clear. I mean, the EU US Data Shield was there, and we thought we were working with it. Switzerland's come along, and I, I remember reading the other day that um, uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago they announced now that, that, that as of April of 12, 2017, this year, um, you could self-certify, but there's a, uh, and I can't remember the exact date, but there's a period at which you've now got to be able to demonstrate if you're doing stuff with data in and out of Switzerland and the USA, very similar to what the um, US EU data shield was, but now specifically a Swiss version applies. So... You know, add on top of that that the EU um, uh, GDPR and you know all of a sudden this this whole pancake stack of regulatory compliance and requirements gets really difficult. And in Australia, we if you think about banking and finance and wealth management, um, where they are very very heavily regulated and, and governed, if you're a bank or a wealth management company, not only are you, going to, are you going to have to think about some of those global boundary controls, but you already have challenges around what goes in and out of the cloud with things like. Um, Compliance for the the uh, for a group called ASIC, the, the, who register company names and, and provide governance around how companies are run and reported on. APRA, which is the Australian Prudentials Regulatory Association, how if you're a prudential service provider, some form you've got to comply with a series of of local domestic uh, uh, controls. You've then got counterparties like you've got um, each of the banks have their own controls. You've got different stock exchanges like right. ChiX uh, has a micro exchange, and you've got the Australian Stock Exchange or the Securities Australian Security Exchange. Oh. 
it, it is literally a minefield. I, I, I suspect, and you mentioned a great phrase there before that we're coming up to the point where um, cloud and things around it are like a Y2K challenge and that, you know, January 1 and two, year 2000, there was no get out of jail card. It was coming at you. You couldn't pause it. The time kept moving. And on the 1st of January um, of, of zero hundred hours, the clock ticked over. And if you weren't Y2K ready, too bad. And I, I think we're going to get right. to a situation where the GDPR controls, the, the US uh, uh, Swiss uh, version of the, the Data Shield framework, some of the stuff we're doing around the Privacy uh, Act amendments uh, uh, in Australia with the uh, Notifiable Breaches Act, they're very big challenges. And to me, my take on it is that most companies are not going to be geared for it. They're not going to be capable of it. And this is a, you know, a place where someone like yourselves or the, the, the team or the scale you've got, you're going to have the right teams to be able to come in and quickly address the problem, provide some sort of strategic direction, a roadmap and a timeline and a plan. I can only imagine that uh, you know there's a point in time soon where your phone's going to ring hot saying, come and help us. <laughs> um, right. And, and, and uh, it's going to be an exciting time for you. I guess um, uh, before we wrap up, I'd like to throw a couple of quick um, uh, uh, questions that you maybe just get quick 30-second summaries um, because you've got a very broad reach and you've, you know, this global role you've got is a very exciting opportunity to see things that, that we don't generally see domestically here in Australia. If you were going to highlight a couple of pitfalls, a couple of things to be thinking about for companies who are looking to either adopt cloud from the first time or transition large workloads into the cloud, what are some of the sort of maybe the two or three highlights you can you can share that you've seen out there on a global scale that might be relevant to Australia on some of the pitfalls, some of the things to be aware of and, and where Tech Mahindra has helped organizations and clients avoid those pitfalls and, and put plans in place to ensure that they don't get bitten by them? Sure. So, so I think one of the key things uh, in, in talking to many of the CIOs that I meet with um, who have adopted cloud and uh, uh, and have stated to me that you know one thing that we completely overlooked was uh, when we build the architecture for cloud and, and we've actually helped them build a lot of these uh, for, for many companies is the uh, looking at the data movements and the data transfer because that has a severe impact. Your architecture, the way you design your backup strategy, the way you design your backup or archival strategy or DR strategy on cloud, um, it, it has an impact on how data moves. Um, right. So for DR, you may need replication services, and if you do it across region. So there's, there's, there is an associated cost for data transfer, which gets overlooked many a times. People realize the fact that, yes, when, I, when, when data moves out of Amazon, Amazon or Azure or any public cloud provider um, back to your premises, there is a process, but they don't realize some of the other aspects about that I have to archive it, I have to move it into a data warehouse, or if I'm going into another cloud, some of the data. There's a huge amount of uh, variable network or data transfer cost that comes up. And that's been a, uh, that's been a big challenge. We, we saw uh, customers realize this almost two years back. Now when we define our customer strategy for cloud, this is one of the key aspects that we look into at the, uh, at the early stage. So the last two years, every assessment that we have done, we try and understand the data transfer requirements and bake that into the business case because if you don't do that, you're going to be caught up with surprises. So that's one big one. Um, the other aspect is... Um, uh, not so much for pitfall, but but, but it's an acceptance. Uh, the finance organizations and most enterprise organizations are used to having a, a, a well-defined budget, right? And they know 
uh, when they um, when they uh, uh, make out the, the the budget for an IT department, um, they're pretty much on a month-on-month -month basis. Well, exactly based on the projects that are approved and everything. This is how the cost structure would look like, and the and the cash flow would look like. Um, they suddenly now have to deal with uh, with capex and amortizations moving out. They suddenly have to deal with this variable opex cost that is hitting their books. And while CIOs try to maintain it within the budget, the monthly fluctuations can be, you know, 10, 20 percent up or down, um, right. depending on the type of activity. So, so uh, acceptance of this internally, uh, the CIOs working when they when they're making this journey to cloud or the decision to move to the cloud, uh, making their finance teams also made aware of the nuances of how the cash flows will get will get impacted is important and for them to be able to figure out uh, how to deal with it. I guess um, we've got a lot of legacy thinking in many ways, and I don't mean that as a derogatory thing or a negative thing, but there's a lot of um, old school thinking around how we do capacity planning and, and forward planning for budgetary controls, isn't there? And and so there's a behavioral yes. and cultural shift that needs to happen around the difference between buying a fixed uh, uh, sort of capexed um, thing Absolutely, versus yeah. the opex uh, uh, utility model of just you know buying compute and storage in the same way you would a glass of water. Correct. Absolutely. And, and, and the fact that it's going to be it's not going to be constant, it's going to be variable is the other aspect uh, to that uh, dilemma. Uh, one, one, one pitfall which customers will get into that. I want to quickly highlight in the interest of time. I don't want to talk no, too many Go more. ahead. Yeah, absolutely. But one of the things that uh, is going to be very important uh, moving forward is to uh, avoid uh, getting locked in with one cloud service provider. Right. Uh, so far, uh, it's been okay because up until last year, the dominant player was AWS. Um, now, with uh, with Microsoft Azure coming in um, uh, pretty strong, with, and pretty much in terms of functions and features and capabilities, they're all all, all up there. Uh, Oracle coming in with their cloud strategy, um, uh, obviously IBM Bluemix and uh, and Google's there as well. There are options available, and uh, 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 customers need to look at a multi-cloud strategy rather than uh, locking themselves into one. Uh, there will still be some customers who wouldn't mind getting locked into one, but they have to be aware of the facts that some of their workloads in the future will be more economical to run on A cloud than on a B cloud. Right. Um, and, Right, and and, and uh, if you if you look, look at the five big cloud providers, two of them come from a software heritage. I don't want to name them, but it's obvious ones. Yeah, and they have the ability to make their software products much more attractive on their cloud uh, from from a commercial standpoint. So if um, uh, if uh, if someone has chosen, let's say AWS to be one of their uh, to be their cloud provider, and, and you know. And, and move everything onto AWS. Uh, at some point in time, they'll realize, hey, some of these workloads of mine that are running on AWS could be more cost-effective if they're actually running on uh, Oracle, and some maybe yeah. cost-effective yeah. running on Azure. So uh, uh, customers have to. Uh, I mean, I'm bringing this point up so that this doesn't become a major pitfall in the future. And customers are, uh, even if they are adopting just one cloud provider at the start. Their strategy needs to uh, uh, the strategy that they put in place needs to be 
flexible enough to adopt multiple cloud providers, which means the governance, the, uh, the, the audit and control that they put in place shouldn't be geared up. The tools that they leverage for governance and audit and control shouldn't be geared up just to support only one cloud. It should support multi-cloud. Um, and having a uh, uh, having a, a hybrid platform support is important as well. So, so I think I just wanted to call that out as a potential pitfall that organizations would get into in the future. No, absolutely, and and uh, I can probably get away with naming the but you know if we if we were to call out. Um, you know, it, for example, if we look at a, a platform requirement like just a database world, as you said, uh, you know, you could potentially put something up in, in AWS if you just wanted to buy it as infrastructure as a service. And there is a platform as a service offering in databases. But, you know, if you're an Oracle house, it makes sense to move your, your workload for Oracle workloads into the Oracle cloud. If you're a DB2 shop, it makes sense to move it into the Bluemix software cloud. If you're a Microsoft SQL service space, again, it just makes sense to go to Azure in my mind. So, I, you know, I, 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 I was actually does um CIO forum uh, a couple of weeks ago a, a private invite thing uh, and um this came up as a panel discussion that was like you know where do we put things and it was quite interesting that very quickly we gravitated to exactly what you've just highlighted that is where possible avoid vendor lock-in because vendor lock-in in the cloud is actually just as or more dangerous than vendor lock-in in a data center or anywhere else of dedicated hardware but at the same time uh be sensible about um you know, making decisions about where you put things in the cloud because, uh, uh, you know, there was a time where Rackspace, for example, was probably the largest provider of SharePoint hosting in the world uh, because Microsoft hadn't sort of really pushed into the market. But within 18 months, that was a fait accompli, right? And um, and I think, you know, this is probably where companies are going to come looking for advice to the likes of Tech Mahindra because they're not going to have experience, they're not going to have knowledge, and this is going to be, uh, you know, sort of a standard part of your day. And one of the things I think that um, organizations will be looking for that, that you've been able to do, and certainly in my experience in a previous role where, where the Tech Mahindra team built two data center environments in a private cloud and, and a banking platform uh, when I was under a CIO role, was um, just bringing a common language and a vocabulary around all of these challenges so that everyone on my team, about 60 odd people, were able to talk about it authoritatively, but also talk in the same terms and terminology in the language so that we weren't tripping up over the difference between what is a virtual private cloud, what is a VLAN, uh, what does it mean to burst to the cloud versus having a VPC and a whole range of things like that. So, no, it's interesting that you call that out. And um, look, they're, they're, they're great topics to talk about from a pitfall point of view because I think these are things that everyone's going to uh, have some real interest in. Now, that leads me also, too, before we wrap up. Now, we, we're going to catch up soon um, in both Melbourne and Sydney. And, That's right. Um, and, and, and we've actually been doing this for, I think, well, I actually looked, it was like two or three, I think it's the third year in a row I've had the privilege of, of speaking at your um, uh, uh, CXO Summit series, and this one's focused on cloud. I think the, uh, is it Unlock Your Cloud Experience was the title from memory, is that correct? That's correct, that is correct, yes. So that I think uh, August 22nd is Melbourne and August 24th is the Sydney event, so I'm really Sydney. privileged to be there. I was looking at some of the details um, and, and based on what you were talking before, some of the key pullouts that people can look forward to are things like unlocking faster migration, um, looking at where the true potential of cloud actually is. Um, you, one of the great points you just highlighted, removing some of the vendor lock-in where possible, uh, moving towards a true IT as a service capability. That's going to be a great topic to talk about. Looking at some of the um, end user experience 
and then the, the whole digital transformation. So it's going to be a, a great evening on that. Um, are there any key insights that you, you um, could potentially share uh, without giving away too much about what we might be looking to see at some of these at both of these events? Yeah, sure. So uh, the agenda is the same at both the locations. We just want to make sure we uh, reach out to uh, our, our larger customer base in both cities, in Melbourne and Sydney. Um, for, from what we really want to share out there with our uh, uh, customers um, and, and, and the audiences is uh, the experience that we've gained over the last three years in helping uh, customers in various models of cloud and as a service uh, transformation. Um, and, and what happens is many a times when I travel across and I, I, I go, to, go to countries where uh, um, the adoption of cloud is not much, when I talk about experiences from North America or from Australia or from India, they're very much, um, uh, they're very interested to learn and understand how other countries are adopting because this whole adoption into cloud is still a learning curve for many. And everyone's, uh, every interaction that you have and you talk about experience, real experiences, um, uh, there, there are about 50% of the audience that is learning. 50% of them would have already known that information. But because it is a continuous learning process, uh, you know, my, my, my request to everyone who's listening out there is to, um, or to participate in this event to, to basically understand uh, what Tech Mahindra's experiences have been and, and, and uh, our point of view around where this whole journey is leading towards and, and uh, how to uh, uh, how to make this journey seamless and and, uh, and effective uh, would be some of the key messages that we will convey uh, at these events. Fantastic. That's a great summary. Now, while you were talking, I, I reminded myself, uh, I've, actually, I've actually been running a Twitter poll for the last week around the key four areas of cloud that we've been talking about today with the mix of public cloud, private cloud, uh, hybrid, and then a multi-cloud strategy. And out of hundreds of respondents, uh, you might be interested to know that 25% of people thought that public cloud adoption was going to be the most critical cloud challenge they were facing. So the question was, what's the most critical cloud challenge that organizations need to be addressing before the uh, end of 2017? I specifically set the poll up be uh, because of the opportunity to speak at your event, and I wanted some real data out there from, from 840,000-odd close and personal friends on Twitter. So 25% of people thought that the number one challenge for them was public cloud adoption. Uh, only 12% thought that private cloud uh, uh, platforms were going to be a key focus for them. 23% thought hybrid cloud, but here's the interesting one. 40%, a resounding solid 40% said multi-cloud strategy is the single biggest thing that they need to face between now and the end of this year. So it's interesting because right. that, that effectively mirrors exactly what you just covered without having had that data uh, given to you. So it was interesting insight there. So you've clearly got your finger on the pulse. Before we wrap up, can I just do what I'd love to throw one last thing at you. Because um, sure. I know we've taken up a lot of your time. It's been some great insights and I'm looking forward to catching up at the event. Um, one last thing if I can. So if you were to look into the crystal ball um, and, and do a little future gazing, um, if I can split into two parts, maybe. Firstly, for yourself, uh, in your role as a senior VP and, and global head of cloud services at Tech Mahindra, what's over the horizon for you in the next 12 to 18 months in your role, and where do you see that going around your department? What, what do you think some of the, the exciting things coming over the horizon might include? All right, so, so in my role, I think one of the things that uh, I have already started actively doing um, is uh, I, I've realized the consumption and the movement to cloud um, it's not a, it's not something that I need to in my organization 
heading the cloud services business and need to drive alone. Um, so my one of the KRAs that I have, uh, and I define it myself, and I told our CEO as well, is to make sure every vertical in our organization, we have a vertical leader for every domain, um, is thinking about how their platforms and solutions can actually be hosted on cloud and taken to our customers in an as-a-service model. Um, and they're the best people to, uh, they know their domains, they know what are the solutions that are required there right. by the customers. Traditionally, we've been offering them as packaged software or solution and taking it to our customers, deploying it on their data center. They need to change their mindset and take a lot of some, uh, many of our vertical domains have actually created IP all um, on-premise space. I'm, I'm working with them to convert that into a as-a-service cloud hosting model using cloud-native capabilities. And, and uh, that's one of the key directions that I'm taking uh, our organizations into, getting our vertical solutions onto cloud uh, so that in the process we create cloud-based platform offerings that are delivered to our customer as-a-service as model. I think that's one of the, the key areas. Uh, the second key area, uh, while the adoption has started, some of the early, early adopters of cloud, uh, while they've migrated a lot of the workloads, where they have stalled um, is on the ERP side of the softwares uh, and haven't really moved. So another trend that's gonna catch up in the next uh, year or two is uh, migration of SAP and Oracle ERP softwares onto cloud. Uh, so um, my team's working very closely with both the SAP and Oracle um, competency units within our organization uh, to see how we can evolve. Uh, we already have a cloud strategy for uh, Oracle apps and, and SAP on cloud, but evolve it to create value propositions for our customers to where, where it makes sense for them, business sense for them to move that. Um, because that uh, those decisions are going to be coming soon, and we're preparing for that. So, so, so um, the the uh, two key areas, the, th the third one and the last one that um, we're driving is the IoT. There's a lot of platform development, IoT specific platform development work that's going on within our organization, and porting um, uh, a lot of those platforms on cloud is the only. Uh, uh, it, it's the only way to move forward because of the huge um, quantity of data that, that uh, tends to get collected with IoT solutions. Uh, that's another key area where my, yeah. my team and the IoT teams are working together very closely uh, to make sure we enable uh, the cloud capabilities. In many, in many ways, I think, as you just highlighted, uh, the, the shift to, to the whole mobility capability, what we've seen with smartphones and social media certainly taught us that we, we now can't copy all that content back to one central data centre. So we're having to move to that IoT model and basic design principles are going to have to turn upside down from the 60-year-old the uh, mainframe era, you know, centralised database to cloud models to now sort of, you know, what we're calling edge analytics, I guess. If you were to if you were to take a rough stab at the next five to ten years, is there one particular thing you think that is moving really fast that we need to keep our eye on? Is it IoT? Is it autonomous vehicles? What's the one thing that you would call out uh, before we wrap up that you think that people probably really need to sit up and pay attention to that you've you've seen coming through on a global scale in in the privileged position you've got of having a global reach in in your role within Tech Mahindra. So, a uh, very interesting question, and, and five to ten years obviously is a long time out, but, uh, and the reason I'm saying it's a long time out is uh, 
the new technologies that will come out in about five to, in, in the next after five years, uh, we may have not even thought of it today. Yeah. So, so five to ten years out is 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 the speculation is quite high there. But in the next five years, I think the areas to focus uh, definitely um, is um, AR, VR. So, so, so that's going to be uh, uh, important. AI, use of AI um, to um, uh, improve operations efficiencies uh, within business processes or even within IT operations. Um, uh, AI is picking up big time. Um, and and uh, uh, so I mentioned augmented reality and virtual reality, AI, uh, and finally IoT. IoT is going to be a game changer for a lot of the businesses um, in uh, helping to change the way they offer services or quality of service to their end customers uh, and improve the experience. One of the biggest challenges most of the enterprise organizations have been facing uh, is uh, retaining customers, um, existing customers. Right. And in order to retain them, they have to continuously provide value-added services. Uh, IoT is actually going to be uh, enabling that, um, allowing customers to innovate and provide newer customer experiences. Uh, so a combination of all these three um, current technology areas, uh, artificial intelligence, um, AR, VR, and IoT, will change the whole dynamics of uh, how people, how businesses will run and how people will change their lifestyles um, because of these three technologies. Five years hence, there might be something new that will come out. Uh, I mean, I know, um, I know, flying cars are becoming. Uh, it's no longer a, a thought. There's already enough proof of concept. Driverless cars are going to be um, uh, also on the roads uh, soon, uh, and there are a lot of other technologies that are uh, that are being worked upon. But the crux of it around these three areas that I mentioned is going to be uh, uh, critical for everyone to watch out for. And if they're not already uh, thinking about it, they should start thinking about it, how it will impact their business, how it will impact their personal lifestyles as well. Some amazing insights there. So we're going to wrap up there. So, folks, Pravin Bolar, the uh, Senior Vice President and Global Head of Cloud Services at Tech Mahindra. Pravin, thank you so much for making time for us. You've given us a very generous hour of your time, some amazing insights. I'm really looking forward to catching up with you both in Melbourne and Sydney for the uh, CXO Summit and focusing on cloud. And uh, hopefully we'll have the privilege of having you on the show again soon. Thank you very much, Des, and I do look forward to meeting you in uh, Melbourne um, and Sydney. Thank in you. Indeed. Thank you so much. And, folks, we're going to wrap up there, and uh, we hope you enjoyed the show.